Demand for energy is growing, and so is the need for America's oil and natural gas. Our economy, our security, our nation, all run on energy. Today, oil and natural gas provide 70% of our energy. They'll help fuel our economy for decades to come. Let's keep the lights on smart policies that deliver on cleaner, reliable, affordable energy, including American oil and gas. Visit lightsonenergy.com. Paid for by lightsonenergy.com, a project of the American Petroleum Institute. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. As governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson signed one of the strictest abortion bans in the country. He helped fashion the NRA's strategy after the Sandy Hook massacre. So why does someone on the right say he's not conservative enough to be president? We talked about it on The Axe Files. Governor Hutchinson, it's really great to see you. So happy to have you here on the podcast, but also at the Institute of Politics. Well, David, I am delighted to be here and excited about uh, our discussion today, but also uh, meeting with students and uh, talk about the future of our great country. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about you. There's plenty to talk about your candidacy and uh, and about contemporary politics. But one of the things you have to overcome is nobody knows you outside of Arkansas. You're not well known. Uh, so this is an opportunity for people to get to know you and for me to get to know you. So tell me a little bit about, first of all, the, the Hutchinson family, how they got to Arkansas. Tell me about your folks. <laughs> well, that's a joy. And, uh, you know, my uh, I'm the youngest of six children mm-hmm. in our family. And uh, my parents actually migrated from Oklahoma into Arkansas and uh, at that time, I wasn't born. They had four children, and then uh, my brother and I came along. But what's important, I think, for people to understand is that I come from a very blue-collar family. Uh, my mom and dad had high school educations. They worked hard. My dad was a farmer, uh, you know, poultry and cattle. And so I know how to clean out chicken houses and uh that may be appropriate for politics sometimes. <laughs> well, that's uh, there's some uh, correlation there, perhaps. <laughs> uh, and and my dad then became a USDA uh, inspector, so I love the example he set for me in terms of hard work and commitment to uh, family and the community. And uh, even though they only had a high school education, they really instilled in me the importance of it. And so through education, I've had some incredible opportunities in life. Tell me about what what growing up in Gravette, is that how it's pronounced? Actually, it's Gravit. Gravit. You see, Uh, that's why I ask. Well, we lived, uh, Gravit was a town of 1,000 when I grew up there. We lived three and a half miles out in the country, half mile down a dirt road on a 280-acre farm, and I was convinced that we had Jesse James hideout, <laughs> uh, you know, on the on the top 90 acres, and so we explored that. It was just one of the most uh, wonderful childhoods in the sense of just roaming the country, and we actually uh, figured out it took us an hour to ride the bus home, and then you had to walk a half mile down the dirt road. I said, let's skip that, and so we just sort of uh, – fun rides into school. Uh-huh. Now, when I say that, I mean, farmers picked up uh, neighbors. And so we were just uh, adventuresome. And it was a, a time of, 
you know, learning a lot, working hard. Uh, but it was wonderful growing up on that farm. Those also were turbulent times. The, the civil rights sort of revolution was going on in the South, and uh, the war in Vietnam was raging while you were growing up. How insulated were you from all of that, or were you aware of, of all of this? Well, that is an accurate description. The year I uh, graduated from high school, we had two uh, national leaders assassinated, Robert F. Kennedy and, and Martin Luther King. Uh, we had uh, the during that same time frame the Kent State riots. Uh, we had protests on the college campuses, and and as you said, uh, not just the Vietnam War, but the civil rights uh, struggle at the time. And you know, being in uh, Northwest Arkansas, we were a little bit isolated, but uh, the all white town. Well, close to it, mm-hmm. uh, we we had we did not have a significant number of minorities. Uh, but you know, my mom and dad, uh, you know, they were, I remember, you know, the stories of my dad walking out of the Baptist church in Oklahoma because, uh, the KKK was doing a presentation. And so, you know, they understood the civil rights and the importance of it. Uh, but it was more just watching in amazement what was happening in our country. Did you guys talk about politics in the house? You, you, you know, your brother, your older brother, Tim was, a congressman you succeeded him in congress and a and a senator and your dad at some point became a mayor of sulfur springs arkansas (laughs) that's right he was uh in the retirement years uh, but he lived in uh, sulfur springs arkansas a town of about 400 and he was the mayor but you ask you know they were uh they believed in voting and participating uh, I know that uh, in whenever you had the Kennedy-Nixon race, uh, my mom and dad split their votes. And uh, so they were more independent. And they taught us engagement, uh, but they didn't tell us which direction to go. And my first uh, real political memory was 1964, uh, whenever Ronald Reagan spoke to the nation, mm-hmm. called the speech, mm-hmm. uh, where he uh, advocated for Barry Goldwater. And literally, I'm sitting there with my brother listening to that on a black and white TV, drinking my can of Goldwater because, you know, that's what they sort of emblematically, uh, uh, you know, supported a campaign. But I was inspired and said, you know, even at that young age, I liked what I heard in terms of a conservative approach to government, limited government, uh, strong national defense. But I was also engaged in politics. I was chairman of the uh, county committee. I was campaigning for Ronald Reagan. And uh, uh, I lived in a double-wide mobile home outside of Bentonville at the time, uh, raising four kids and just having a wonderful time. I wanted to ask you about Reagan because he's still sort of a vaguely venerated name in the Republican Party. But I'm wondering what you think he would think of what he's seen of the Republican Party now? Because there's a much different set of principles that animate a lot of the Republican base now than when Ronald Reagan got elected. I don't think he'd be very happy today. Uh, Whenever you look at uh, Donald Trump, which I heard him speak this weekend, and then he spoke uh, to uh, the Republican National Committee, and he says, uh, the old Republican Party is gone. We've recreated it. And I don't like the image that he's recreated it. And so while, you know, Ronald Reagan actually created uh, the first semblance of a 
populism in the Republican Party, but it's changed today. And probably the best illustration of it is the fact that we're actually debating within the party whether we should be supportive of Ukraine against the invasion of Russia. Uh, You know, uh, I think the question is, you know, if you take Ronald Reagan's strength uh, of America uh, that brought down the Cold War and the uh, Iron Curtain, I don't think there's any question, but that we ought to be supporting Ukraine today. uh, And uh, that should not even be debated. But you have an isolationist wing of the Republican Party. uh, It's a pretty big wing, isn't it? You know, I think it's still a minority. And I'm very clear on that. I think that's a dividing issue in the presidential campaign in 2024. And uh, I think the isolationist wing uh, uh, is supported by some of the popular news commentators of today. And uh, I think that sways some people. I guess you're talking about Tucker Carlson. Well, yes, that represents the isolationist wing, the almost the pro-Russia wing of the party. And that's not where I am. And I don't believe that's where Ronald Reagan was. What did you think when, you know, this young man was arrested last week, this uh, Air Force reservist who was responsible for a major national security leak. And I know the one issue is how does a young man like that have access to all that? But the other is that you had people in your party, Marjorie Taylor Greene comes to mind, who has become a, a force within the caucus that you once served in, who said, you know, that the Biden administration targeted him because he was an anti-war person, which I'm not even sure if that's true or not, and that he was white and he was Christian and so on. And yet she's a major voice in your party. Well, I disagree completely with that. Ken McCarthy didn't even say anything about it other than that. We got to figure out where the leak is coming from, how these leaks happen. Well, that's unacceptable for someone to defend the mishandling of classified information and, in essence, uh, committing acts of espionage that's detrimental not just to our country, but to individual lives of uh, our people who are gathering intelligence for us. And so uh, that's unacceptable. They have misused uh, the information uh, to our detriment, and uh, they should be prosecuted. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. But on this issue of the Espionage Act, there was a report that uh, President Trump, uh, after he left office, shared a uh, a map that was uh, classified, highly classified, and contained highly classified material there to a number of different people for whatever reason. Does the same principle apply there? Well, sure. I mean, the law should uh, applies across the board. Uh, whenever you look at, uh, uh, you know, President Trump as he left office, took classified information with him down to Mar-a-Lago. Uh, I don't like uh, the way the Department of Justice handled the search, uh, but we have a lot of information that we still don't know yet. Uh, the Uh, Even the intel committees uh, in the House and Senate do not have the specific documents that were held at Mar-a-Lago. And so we have to wait and see as to what it is. But regardless, they are classified, and that's uh, not where they should be. Uh, But again, uh, you know, I think it's uh, unseemly that there's uh, potential prosecutions there. I don't know all the facts yet, but based upon what I've seen, you know, the the national interest is getting those documents back and uh, making sure that we adjust our policies so that uh, we don't get in a situation where 
materials are accidentally uh, boxed and taken out uh, of the White House when presidents leave. You know, when you talked about what Reagan would say about the party, you have a former president who might be the nominee again, who's the front runner right now, who's actually been strengthened since he's been indicted in polling. Isn't that a peculiar dynamic? I mean, well, how do you process that? Well, you know, the fact is, uh, I was a federal prosecutor. I was the youngest U.S. attorney appointed by uh, Ronald Reagan. So I've made prosecutorial decisions. And uh, I don't believe what Alvin Bragg did in New York City was uh, in the national interest. I don't believe it was uh, uh, appropriate to, uh, you know, use a legal theory to bootstrap a case into a felony. Uh, and, and, Obviously, the American public sees it the same way because uh, they believe uh, this is an unfair prosecution and the sympathy factor kicks in. And so he gets a boost in the polls and uh, he raises money off of it. Uh, that's uh, so I, I I don't like what's happened there. And uh, I take a, the approach that, you know, he's under investigation in New York indictment now. He's still under investigation for the classified information Mar-a-Lago. He's under investigation for. Uh, the uh, January 6th terrible circumstance of undermining our democracy. And we don't know where those, those are going to go, but what's to me, let's take those all off the table. And that's what the American public probably ought to do now is take those off the table. And then what do you have? You have a flawed candidate that can't win in 2024. And uh, that's why I'm running for president. Let's go backwards. You know, I read somewhere that you said you, you described this sort of storybook kind of childhood, but I read somewhere that you said that you had challenges as a kid, as maybe any, the sixth of six children would, but, and that led you to go to Bob Jones University, that you had a pastor who encouraged you to go. What were those challenges that you had that led you there? Well, the spirit of the 60s uh, overtook me in high school, and mm-hmm. so uh, I, I was uh, had a rebellious side to me, and I was slacking off as a student, and I was actually working in a, a factory and making more money than I ever was before at Welch's Grape Juice Factory, and uh, I thought about not going to college, and uh, you know, because of a pastor who encouraged me and a parents who said, hey, he needs to uh, get back on track, and, and so... Uh, you know, I, I did go to college and I joke and not joke. It's true. I I picked my major accounting because it was the first major listed alphabetically in the catalog of, uh, of courses that you could take. And in other words, I was a teenager, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do. Could have read it upside down and studied zoology. (laughs) Well, thank goodness I didn't do it that way. (laughs) But you, you were attracted to the law. Why were you attracted to the law? Well, I spent four years in accounting, got my degree in it, but in my junior and senior year, I got involved in debate. And so it took me over to Clemson Law School where I sat there and I started reading cases and I all of a sudden it struck me. I just love this. I, I love the debate about the law. I love the application of it. So I tried to go to law school. And you went back to Arkansas. You went to law school and you became a litigator. Uh, at a very young age. Well, and that's a really important point because uh, a lot of people look at my career and say he's been in public service all of his life. The fact is I practiced law and made my living practicing law for 25 years. We should say parenthetically, not for lack of trying, because you ran for office. You ran for office a lot. 
and unsuccessfully. In fairness, Arkansas had a history of electing Democrats, uh, but uh, nonetheless. Well, first of all, I'll concede the point. <laughs> it's well known. As a good debater should. <laughs> I, I lost uh, three statewide races before I got elected governor. Yes. Now, I had some successes in the interim, but yeah. let me tell you, uh, that would never happen in Europe. Uh, yeah. Once you lose, you're out. Yeah. And here in America, you have that opportunity to come back. Yeah. But that was part of the building of the Republican Party in Arkansas. Yeah. And uh, you're right. It, we were not a red state then. We were a blue state, and I was running against the grain. But because of that, uh, you know, I, I got to enjoy practice in law. And so I tried uh, everything from uh, employment cases, uh, taking them to a jury on the plaintiff's side, uh, to uh, going through white-collar criminal defense uh, work. And I handled a lot of cases from uh, trafficking in persons uh, to uh, espionage uh, to uh, all sorts of uh, white-collar crime. And so I love being in the courtroom. I love trying cases and uh, had a pretty good track record doing that. Well, you must have because you were appointed, as you mentioned, U.S. attorney. You were the youngest U.S. attorney in the country. And I think some of us of sufficient vintage will remember uh, a case that you tried, a prosecution of a white supremacist group back in the 80s. It got a lot of attention because there was a standoff at their compound. They were heavily armed. And you went in with a flak jacket and talked them out of there and then prosecuted them. Tell me a little about that. Well, it was an extraordinary time. This was in the 80s, and we had a rise of uh, white supremacist groups, neo-Nazi groups, uh, uh, the identity movement across the country, and they were extremely violent, and they had convocations. Uh, they did training, preparing for the collapse of the United States. And uh, we had one of those groups in uh, northern Arkansas called the Covenant, the Sword, and Arm of the Lord. James Ellison led it, and as we investigated it, uh, we found that they had committed murders, they had burned churches, they were oppressing minority uh, individuals and churches and burning them. And then they also uh, trained on their compound uh, for more violence, targeting uh, state police and uh, well, you assassin. You're right. I was the uh, target of an assassination plot uh, during that time. Thank goodness it was unsuccessful. Uh, but whenever we got enough evidence, we were going to arrest James Ellison and search the compound. And uh, we had 200 law enforcement officers from five different states, SWAT teams that were there. And we were prepared to execute the search warrant. But in the meantime, one of the individuals going to the compound shot and killed Trooper Linegar in Missouri. The national media came down. It blew our cover. We went ahead, surrounded the compound, asked for uh, James Ellison's surrender. He refused. And the FBI called and said, uh, we need you up here to assist in the negotiation. Uh, I went up there to northern Arkansas, got out of the vehicle. There's a sort of a classic picture of me not dressed uh, appropriately for the occasion. Uh, but uh, as I, I don't know how you're supposed to dress for that. But. Well, you know, if I was looking at the future, I'd have camouflage on, but I think I had a white shirt and, <laughs> and they threw me a bulletproof vest and say, hey, you might need this. And I'm thinking, this is not why I went to law school. Uh, but, you know, it's incredible work, working with law enforcement uh, and having a very successful operation to save lives and have them surrender. 
We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. Demand for energy is growing, and so is the need for America's oil and natural gas. Our economy, our security, our nation, all run on energy. Today, oil and natural gas provide 70% of our energy. They'll help fuel our economy for decades to come. Let's keep the lights on smart policies that deliver on cleaner, reliable, affordable energy, including American oil and gas. Visit LightsOnEnergy.com. Paid for by LightsOnEnergy.com, a project of the American Petroleum Institute. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And now... Back to the show. The FBI director, Homeland Security, and so on, have all suggested that they are deeply concerned about a new rise of white supremacism, of these kinds of loosely knit right-wing orders. We saw some of them surface on January 6th at the Capitol. Are you worried about that? We've seen an increase in the domestic terrorism uh, that uh, is very similar to what we saw in the 80s. And yes, it is a concern today, absolutely. And, uh, uh, you know, every generation has to face uh, this issue. And whenever you have people with discontent, they're looking at themselves as a victim and they want to blame somebody for the challenges that they see in life. And you have a charismatic leader come along and uh, challenges them and says, uh, Here's a, a, you know, blame it on particular racial group, uh, you know, and it, it goes bad very quickly. And so you've got to make sure you're clear uh, that it's uh, unacceptable. And uh, when they commit acts of violence, you go after them uh, with severity. Isn't this, though, part of your challenge? Because and I, I don't want to make this all about Trump, although I'm sure he wouldn't object. But he he has you say when charismatic leaders come along. His message basically is the government is corrupt, the FBI is corrupt, you know, all these institutions are corrupt and rigged. Doesn't that contribute to the environment in which these kinds of groups flourish if they feel like they're getting validated by the leader of the country or the former leader of the country and I guess the future leader as they hope? Well, if you take populism to an extreme, it becomes demagoguery. And, uh, Yes, whenever you're talking about undermining the uh, law enforcement uh, and their mission, it in fact undermines the rule of law that we have. And so uh, I think the FBI actually needs to be reformed. I believe that uh, somebody with my experience in law enforcement is someone that could take on that challenge. Uh, but uh, to undermine uh, all of the, what we're doing at the federal level, you've got to be careful about the words that you use. And... Uh, Uh, very precise about it because what we have in our justice system is not perfect, but it is the envy of the world and is what gives us economic success in this country. 
And when you look at the challenges in Mexico, it goes back to they do not have a good rule of law. When you look at China and their competitiveness uh, in terms of uh, the economy, uh, they're going to have a hard time overtaking us because they have a weak rule of law. And that's fundamental uh, to commerce. It's fundamental to freedom. And so let's not undermine it. Let's make it work and, and uh, keep it the, the envy of the world. Do you think that the president, through his words, President Trump, uh, has worked to undermine the rule of law? Yes. Whenever you look at what happens on January 6th, uh, whenever you look at uh, the uh, fact that he talks about defunding uh, the FBI, uh, that is the lead on the fight against global terrorism uh, here in the United States, uh, you know, that does not make sense. It's not wise. And so that does have a, an impact of undermining the rule of law in our country. You did get elected to Congress in 1996. That was your first big success. And you really, in Congress, you were indisputably very, very conservative, but you were very much a, as you point out, a Reagan Republican, uh, pro-trade, strong national defense, fiscal restraint, and so on. Just getting back to our discussion before, you know, you talk about populism and, and resentments and so on. Some of the things that you advocated and that you continue to advocate fly in the face of that populism, uh, you know, on trade, on international engagement. It just feels like there's been a tremendous drift from that moment. Well, sure. There's a, it takes leadership. We need leaders that bring out the best of America that are that, that lead based upon the principles that you recited of the Republican party. And uh, that's, what I'm doing out there. Are, are now, those the principles of the Republican Party, I guess, is my question, as it exists today? Is that what this election is about? Is that how you see it? Uh, I do, actually. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, the, the lead candidate, Donald Trump, right now, that makes it very clear he sees a different direction of the Republican Party, and uh, he wants to destroy the old Republican Party. And I'm just as engaged in the important issues, you know, whenever I talk uh, my stump speech. I'm talking about uh, an effective energy policy. I'm talking about border security. Uh, I'm talking about the strength of America. I'm talking about slowing down federal spending. And these are issues that are all important to uh, the Republican base. And so, you know, I can win those votes. What strikes me is you're a peculiar figure in American politics today because, uh, and I've said this often, I think our incentives are misaligned you get rewarded for outrage. You get rewarded for appeals to grievance. That's how social media works. The algorithms have discovered that they can keep you online with outrage, and it drives us into our silos. And that's a little bit of how our politics works, and Donald Trump is an example of that. You don't strike me as an outrage guy. You don't raise your voice. You don't shake your fist. You don't engage in the, in the kinds of characterizations that we've seen from some other politicians. How does that work in today's political environment? Well, one, it's easy to be underestimated because you're not outrageous. Uh, but there is a, a element that's yearning for more normal and problem-solving leadership. But I also point to the fact that, uh, you know, I've been anti-establishment uh, all my career, uh, you know, as I fought uh, for turning Arkansas into a two-party system to building the Republican Party, 
I was going up against the entire establishment. And so uh, I'm, I'm used to that battle. And uh, I think it is important that everyone sees a candidate who's willing to take on establishment, to take on the status quo, to change things, and to fight hard. And uh, anybody who sees uh, uh, my life, whether it's uh, taking on a terrorist organization or whether it's fighting for justice in the courtroom, I'm a fighter. It's just not I'm, uh, I'm not outrageous. Uh, and I do believe in civility. So we'll see where that goes. But you know, it is going against the grain of, of what is uh, typical today in today's politics. But in a lot of ways, we don't like what's typical in today's politics. Yeah. The question is, can you mobilize people who don't like what's typical in today's politics? And I think the answer is you can. Uh, sometimes it takes a little bit longer. You have to use different techniques and you have to demonstrate that uh, you're fighting for uh, the issues that they're concerned about and that you know, the record of experience, uh, the record of problem solving and making a difference, uh, that inspires people as well. You know, you were at the NRA convention, Pence spoke, Vice President Pence. Here's the thing. His record is probably every bit as tough as yours on that issue. And he got roundly booed at the convention because he was seen as uh, having been anti-Trump because of what he did on January 6th and subsequent comments and so on. And even he is being very careful. Everybody's navigating around Trump. Trump has a 73, I think it, I, yesterday I saw a poll, 80% favorable rating among Republicans. Can you take the tact you're taking and be successful? Well, I was there as uh, former Vice President Pence spoke. He was booed when he went out there. But it's been a little bit overstated by the media. You know, he had uh, great applause lines. He was given an ovation to, at the end. And so, you know, it's it's like an audience, uh, you know, it, in the Republican audience, you might have 30 uh, percent that uh, are so ardent Trump that they're going to boo you. Uh, but I'm happy to go after the 70 percent. And, uh, you know, every time I ran for reelection, Arkansas as governor, uh, I was a posed from the extreme right wing and I won by 70%. And so you've got to be able to take that on and you got to do it in a, in a way that doesn't alienate the 30% totally. And, uh, they could smile and, uh, you know, if you can win, they're going to support you and be in that camp for you. So I think it can be managed. Uh, but, uh, regardless, uh, you know, campaign is about both, uh, appealing to what the voters are concerned about, but also, providing leadership for a country that is yearning for leadership that brings out the best of America and doesn't appeal to your worst instincts. And whenever, let's come back to the rule of law that you're speaking of. Now, we focused a little bit on the uh, white supremacist, the extreme right-wing element of it. You can appoint to the same undermining of the rule of law from the extreme left-wing as well. And I think that's an important part of the discussion. Uh, whether you're talking about Chicago or New York and prosecutors that are not uh, pursuing the rule of law and enforcing the law, that undermines it. Whenever you see uh, the uh, violence that you have in the urban areas particularly and and uh, the uh, disregard for the law, that undermines it just as much. And so, you know, on both sides, uh, I think we got to recognize that uh, we have to continue to support that and be tough on enforcement, uh, strong on uh, the 
reducing violence in our society. You mentioned Chicago. There was an excellent series in the Tribune in the, in the past uh, week or so about how long it takes for people to get prosecuted, even for relatively minor crimes. I mean, there are people sit for years in the county jail. So it doesn't a prosecutor have to make some judgments as to which cases they need to prioritize and, and how quickly they get to them? Yes, that's a part of the prosecutorial discretion. And uh, uh, they have to set their priorities. That's why, you know, I'm critical of Alvin Bragg in New York that he set his priorities on a very novel legal theory going after somebody that had a campaign finance uh, violation allegation. And you got uh, a lot of other serious issues in New York. So prosecutors do have to make decisions, but they also have to do several things at once. You obviously did. You co- do you prosecute a lot of different cases at once. Jim Jordan and the Judiciary Committee are going to are going to hold hearings into Bragg. Is that an appropriate thing to do? How, as a former prosecutor, do you interpret that? Well, I think you have to be careful there because uh, obviously there's a federal interest in assuring that federal funds are appropriately spent. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you can't engage in uh, trying to intimidate a local prosecutor. And I hope that's, I don't believe that's the case, but uh, it's it's on the margins as to, uh, you know, whether that's an effective uh, oversight. The other thing that caught my eye when you were in Congress is that you were a co-sponsor of what came to be known as the McCain-Feingold Act which was to try and get spending in campaigns under control and particularly sort of outside spending in campaigns. The Supreme Court came along and sort of gutted major elements of it with Citizens United. And now we have a flood of money like we've never seen before in campaigns. Doesn't that disadvantage someone like you? And what do you think it does to the system? Whenever you're looking at the spending and accumulation of money in outside groups, they have, in many instances, more influence over the campaign than the candidate does with limited resources. Now, go back to McCain-Feingold. You know, I actually, we called it a bipartisan freshman bill. And the distinction was that we didn't go as far as McCain-Feingold because we tried to stay within the constitution, what we saw as the constitutional constraints. And it was actually a better bill uh, that had a better chance of being sustained by the Supreme Court, and uh, it would have kept the uh, money more within the candidates and the parties uh, versus all of the outside groups. And so there was a distinction there, but I'm troubled where we are today, but it is. That's where the Supreme Court said uh, the Constitution requires us to be. So you got to manage it, uh, but Money's going to flow in politics, and money is free speech, and so you can't restrain other groups from doing it. You just got to strengthen your own voice and uh, uh, make sure that uh, you've got aligned uh, groups that can get your message out. Because some of your opponents, Governor DeSantis, who hasn't even announced yet, has tens and tens, probably over $100 million now in uh, funds sitting in a super PAC, President Trump as well has a, a super PAC. Every candidate has these huge sums of money. Can you compete with that? I believe so, yes. And and part of the reason is uh, we've got a great system uh, in which uh, we're going into Iowa, we're going to New Hampshire, small states, retail politics still counts. And uh, and so that's what I'm loving about uh, Iowa uh, is that you 
shake hands, you look them in the eye, you tell them what you believe in, and that does make a difference. I but spent on, a lot of time there back in 2007. And- but we continue, you know, there is a super PAC that uh, it supports my candidacy. and and uh, How super is it? <laughs> well, the reporting deadline's down the road, but yeah, uh, you'll see uh, uh, money coming in there. I trust. I, you know, I, now that I'm a candidate, I'm independent from that and can't communicate with them, but we're going to be raising money. We're going to be competitive. You left the Congress to become head of the DEA, and we have a tremendous problem today of fentanyl coming across the border. What do we do about that? Well, you're right. Uh, I uh, became part of the, or lead of the Drug Enforcement Administration. It was one month before the 9-11 attack, which changed everything. But the DEA, I'm really proud of them because uh, th- this administration uh, just announced a, an indictment of uh, major cartel leaders in Mexico uh, with the Sinaloa cartel. The sons of El Chapo. Yes, the sons of El Chapo. And uh, and it's from the Northern District of Illinois, one of the cases. So it's right here in Chicago. I read the indictment last night. And uh, what a great job the DEA has done, the local uh, prosecutors, because that's an example of where fentanyl uh, and other drugs coming into Chicago, distributed and killing our youth. And uh, it's what needs to be done about it is, first of all, extraordinary education, uh, the danger of, of the fentanyl that we're not used to such a small quantity uh, milligrams being able to kill somebody just because it's aligned in one pill. And uh, it's, you know, one uh, uh, leader said that 100% of the drugs sold, the pills sold on the street are fake. And you're just gambling with your life. If you take one of those pills, buy one, take one, because it very likely could be lined with fentanyl. And so uh, this is coming from the cartels. We've got to target them. I believe they should be declared national foreign terrorist organizations. Uh, we've got to uh, stop the precursors, try to stop those from coming into China. But it's about educating our young people, reducing the demand in our country, uh, which is probably the most critical, and then helping to secure the border uh, to s- try to reduce the flow of the fentanyl coming in and going after the cartels. Let me ask you a question. and. I hope you understand the spirit in which I ask it. One of your children has had a struggle with substance abuse. He just, there was a case just in the last month, which is his law license was suspended and and so on. Um, So obviously you've struggled with this as a parent. What is that like? And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's going to ask this question. Was that concern part of your calculation in terms of whether to run for president or not run for president? Does your family want that kind of scrutiny or do you want to bring that kind of scrutiny down? Does it make it harder for your kid? So on. It used to be that, uh, you know, family would be uh, somewhat protected and immune uh, during uh, a campaign if you don't feature them and make them a part of it. But that's no longer the world in which we live. And Yes, I, I think uh, it certainly illustrates that even though I've been head of the DEA, I've been a federal prosecutor, that uh, there's no family that's exempt from the challenge of, of uh, drug abuse, and uh, it strikes us hard. And uh, I understand it. It's a struggle. And, uh, and sure, I hate to see uh, the scrutiny that's going to come on it, but we understand it. And, uh, you know, we solicit everyone's uh, prayers, just like uh, I pray for other families that are 
hit with this. Does it inform your thinking about how we should approach this issue and how we should approach people who are, I would say, victimized by addiction and drug abuse? Should we treat it as a crime or should we treat it as as, as an illness? Well, in some ways, both. Uh, I mean, I'm not for the legalization of uh, illicit and harmful substances uh, more than we already have. I think it's that's what many times brings people into treatment is that they're actually confronted uh, with their illness or their uh, drug abuse by a law enforcement officials. And uh, on the other side, I've fully supported, and this goes back to my time as head of the DEA, of drug, drug courts, which provides an alternative to incarceration for someone who simply has, not simply, but has an addiction problem that is combined with a crime problem. And uh, that's been successful in my judgment. We've expanded it while I've been governor of Arkansas. And, you know, we have to continue to emphasize the uh, treatment side, understanding that uh, uh, addiction is an illness and they need help. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You mentioned 9-11. You got pressed into duty in the new uh, Department of Homeland Security, and your portfolio was the border. Tell me what you see today uh, and, and what we should be doing to curtail what is this inflow of immigrants. And I should say, parenthetically, I'm the son of a refugee, of an immigrant. So one of the things that I love about this country is that it has always been a magnet for uh, people who are seeking freedom and the ability to live their lives and support their families and so on. And and I agree completely. I think it's important for us to emphasize the contribution that immigrants uh, make to our nation, uh, part of the fabric of our country, and and actually the the fabric in which we have uh, more jobs and entrepreneurship. Now, I'm a rule of law guy, and so it has to be through legal flow of immigrants coming to our country. And so what we see at the southern border is unacceptable. Uh, as you mentioned, I was uh, in charge of that responsibility in the Bush administration, and let me be the first to say we didn't get it perfect. Uh, but what we see in the Biden administration is a signal that was sent early on that uh, it's going to be uh, an open border. Now, that those words were never used, uh, but whenever you reverse all of the tough policies of the last administration, uh, that's a signal that is sent. And so... Do you think the last administration got it right? Not perfectly, but this message was sent, don't come across our border because it's not easy. <laughs> and that slowed the flow, and uh, that, that message nationally, internationally is important. Uh, and so now President Biden has tried to toughen up the border policy and go back and really do some, make some changes that are important and overdue, but the message is still out there. What do we need to do about it? You need to toughen up the message. We believe in asylum, and if somebody is fleeing persecution, uh, they ought to have refuge here in the United States under our international rules. Uh, But, uh, you know, you change the system by 
saying you've got to come through a port of entry. Uh, if you're crossing another uh, country, uh, then you've got to claim asylum in that other country versus trans- transversing it to the United States. Uh, we also need to process them. When somebody claims for asylum, you don't uh, release them in the United States. And There's say, a huge backlog here. of cases. Well, there is. And so you've got to put resources in to process mm-hmm. those cases. You've got to put more Border Patrol resources in, and you've got to put more uh, infrastructure in. You got elected governor in 2014, and let, let me stipulate just in the interest of time that you, you know, you did stress the things that you talk about. You stressed tax cuts, you stressed uh, deregulation, and, and put an emphasis on the economic issues facing the state. That is not the direction and flow of our politics. It wasn't the direction and flow of your legislature at times. So, but I, I want to ask about two specific issues that are very uh, topical. One is abortion. Uh, you signed the, one of the, if not the uh, toughest abortion law in the country, basically outlawing abortion apart from the the cases where the health of the mother and the life of the mother was involved. You speak so eloquently about government's role and the need to have a light hand on regulatory issues. There are a lot of women in this country who would say, this is completely antithetical to that philosophy, government telling me what I should do with my own body and the most intimate decision that a person has to make. Do you understand that concern? I do. I do. And uh, it's tough. It's a tough issue all around. Uh, my historic position, my current position, uh, is that uh, the unborn represent life and deserve protection. And uh, there's three exceptions that uh, I've always acknowledged, which is when the life of the mother is at stake and in cases of rape and incest. Although that's not in the law that you signed. That's right. And as governor, I had to deal with uh, pregnancies uh, for uh, young girls. I'm talking about teens uh, and uh, were subject of incest or rape. And so I've had to deal with some of those tough issues. And so I know the reality of it from that perspective. Obviously, you're talking about an unborn child that I believe represents life. And so I think it's deserving of government protection, with the exceptions of, you know, rape and incest and the life of mother. And why are those exceptions? And obviously, the life of the mother uh, is something that there's unity about. But in the rape and incest exceptions, those are the product of criminal acts. And that's where I believe that decision should be made outside of the dictates of government. And, and so that's how I look at that. Uh, I think that conservatives need to think through when do we use the power of government? And whenever you're looking at uh, a pregnancies that result of consensual sex, let's protect the life. But if it is uh, the result of a criminal act, I think you withdraw the power of the government in uh, making that decision. And so that's been my historic position. And the other part of it is uh, that it should be returned to the states. Uh, I supported the reversal of Roe versus Wade and for the states to be able to make their own health care decisions there. In Arkansas, you override the governor's veto by a simple majority, uh, which is uh, rather unique. It doesn't take a two-thirds. And so I signed that law because I believe it unbalanced, it protected the life of the unborn at the time that I, I advocated and said, 
I do wish that there would be the exceptions of rape and incest, and I believe that those will be revisited as as time goes on in our society. I should also ask how it impacts states, because you have these, uh, you, you know, if you look at the map of the country, you have a series of states that have basically banned abortion for all intents and purposes, and then you have states that have not. And that'll presumably influence the decision of people where they live, where they put their businesses and so on. There are are profound implications, aren't there? I think it's a very uh, small percentage of people make their decision on where they're going to live and uh, raise their family based upon what the abortion policy is in that state. But we will see about that. But Arkansas is growing significantly. Uh, People are moving there from California and other places Uh, And it's a very dynamic economy. And so as the cultural differences, uh, you know, arise on issues such as abortion, that debate will take place. But the state will determine its own future. What about the uh, the politics? Well, the politics of it, the position that I've taken uh, in my heart that I believe in, uh, I think that is a a message that works in a November election. Uh, If I go to uh, New Hampshire or or uh, any other state, uh, you're going to be able to determine what your policy is on this vital health care issue. Do you, there was a recent court decision that's now being litigated that would eliminate medication abortions, uh, which is the majority of abortions in this country. Would you, how did you feel about that decision? And do you think as a policy matter, that should be the case? Well, that's a really an evidentiary matter as to whether the FDA decision was based upon science and whether they took the right steps to protect the health of the mother uh, with the application of the abortion pill. Uh, You know, beyond that, uh, it's, you know, states that don't have prohibitions on abortion, that's allowed, and states that have uh, that abortion then, or does not, then that bill would be pill would be prohibited. Governor, we now have 22 years of experience. I think it was 2001 or 2000 when this medication was approved by the FDA, there's a huge body of evidence that the drug is safe. Can you think of other instances where the court on this basis overturned FDA decisions? And should courts be making those decisions? Well, there are. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, uh, you know, the application of FDA rules on vaccines. Uh, they, they've been reviewed. There are other decisions. It's not unusual for a court to review an administrative ruling as to whether the uh, process was followed right and whether uh, the, uh, the agency uh, violated, uh, you know, the evidence whenever they, and were arbitrary and capricious. That's a standard for reviewing, and it's done all the time in the courts. I don't know how the Supreme Court is going to rule on that, We'll have to wait and see, but it's not unusual that that is reviewed. Because it does seem like sort of a backdoor way to prohibit the most widely used form of abortion. I don't see going to the courts and having them review it as a backdoor way. It's the ACLU files suits all the time as to administrative rules. So it's not unusual that it's being reviewed. Uh, I think it is a, a question as to uh, whether the record supports uh, the safe using of that abortion pill. The the other issue that we should talk about, because it's very much in the news, tragically because of uh, some of these mass killings, and we saw uh, another one uh, over the weekend in Alabama, and that's guns. You mentioned the NRA. You you worked 
with the NRA after the uh, Newtown uh, massacre in helping shape their uh, approach uh, to it. Why should we not be more restrictive in terms of, of guns in this country, given the history of what we've seen? We should always be looking at things that make a difference in saving lives. And whenever you look at the access to uh, firearms that's constitutionally protected in America, uh, whenever you look at uh, each instance as to what happened, uh, the ultimate conclusion is that we've got to protect our schools and uh, the armed personnel, school resource officers and others that protect our schools and law enforcement response do make a difference. And uh, the same thing is true in the private businesses, whether it's a bank or a shopping mall. And so we invest in the security side. We also have to realize the uh, mental health issues that are here. And uh, uh, that's why we've invested more in Arkansas and school counselors, uh, why uh, the National School Shield report that uh, I led uh, emphasized the reporting structure when you see a student or others that pose a threat. And then I think we have to go back to the simple law that exists really at every state that if someone poses a risk to themselves or to others, in other words, is suicidal or homicidal, that uh, you can have them committed. Now, it has to be a hearing. It has to be uh, medical little, evidence that supports it. Allowing for the fact that particularly in some of these mass killings, you know, you have these this history of behavior that, that ult- when you look back points to these things. But we have exponentially more gun-related incidents, gun-related homicides than our peer nations. Do you think we have exponentially more mental illness in this country? Is that why we have so much more in the way of gun deaths? I don't know uh, that for sure, but you know that in a number of instances, not all of them, uh, but a number of instances of school shootings or or in uh, business uh, shootings, that uh, the person was mentally ill and there were flashpoints, uh, there were triggers that yeah. would have alerted somebody saying they're a danger. And that those steps could have been taken. So we've got to learn from that and adjust. There's also instances of just pure evil out there. And uh, that's a different issue. And that's where the protection needs to come in. Place. But I mean, you know, Arkansas ranks number eight in the country in terms of per capita gun deaths. Uh, you're not arguing that Arkansas as the eighth greatest problem, mental, uh, mental health issues there. That's not your position because Arkansas also has one of the highest, I think number seven in terms of gun ownership. Uh, your laws aren't particularly tough there on guns. Don't you think there's a relationship between those things? Well, whenever you look at, uh, uh, deaths as a result of firearms, some of those are hunting accidents. And we have a very outdoor hunting culture in Arkansas. And so well, what percentage do you think are those? I, I could not give you the specific number on those, but there's a lot of factors that go into that. And so, uh, no, I, uh, I'm not sure of your point here. But- well, my point is just that it's a little glib to say it's a mental health problem. Yes, there are mental health issues, but also we have 46% of the privately owned weapons, firearms in the world. In our country, we only have 4% of the population. It seems like there's a correlation between the two. When you look at the uh, number of st- the states that are the most subject to uh, death by gun, almost all of them have the least restrictive gun laws. When you look at the states that have the fewest, 
they have tougher gun safety laws. And it just seems like there are things that the country agrees on that we could we ought to be able to agree on universal background checks as as one of them. Why can't we move forward on some of those things that don't restrict the right of law-abiding citizens to own their guns under the Constitution, but may stop people who shouldn't have guns from getting them? I, I think, uh, you know, after the Uvalde shooting, Senator Cornyn, Senator Murphy of New Jersey came together along with others and passed a bipartisan bill that uh, improved the background checks and the information that flows into them. And so, yes, that's something that should always be looked at. Again, I come back to the point of what makes a difference, and you can go out and confiscate uh, firearms, and you're still going to have murders. And, uh, you know, it's it, we are a unique situation in America because uh, we do have the Second Amendment. It's in our Constitution, and there's a reason for it. And uh, so there's a limitation on the restrictions that you can put into place. And so you're right. Mental health uh, services and improving those is not going to solve all the problem, but it solves some of the problems and you can do it. And uh, it needs to be invested in. Uh, and also, you know, the enforcement of the law, uh, you know, and giving the tools to prosecutors for, uh, so that they can prosecute a felon in possession of a firearm. Those are important uh, prosecutorial tools that have to be utilized. Let, let me ask you just lastly about the about semi-automatic weapons, assault weapons. In almost all of these mass shootings, you know, we've seen the use of the AR-15 rifle or something similar to it that gives the shooter a tremendous ability to kill at massive scales. I mean, these and the stories of how these weapons tear bodies apart. Why? Why do we need assault weapons? So how would you define an assault weapon? Rapid fire guns and that are designed basically to kill a human beings. That's what they were designed to do. And that sounds like a, an automatic weapon to me, which are uh, unlawful unless you have a, a light specific license to do it. And so what you just described is to outlaw all semi-automatic weapons. And that's not a, a good choice. We to had do. an assault weapons ban. We had, what, 21 categories back in the early 2000s. There was no challenge upheld in the courts, and we've had an exponential growth in the use of those weapons since the ban went out of, uh, it was a 10-year ban, and it, and it expired. So we've, we have some experience with that. An AR-15 is a, is a semi-automatic weapon that is a particular style that looks very dangerous. And Well, it is very dangerous, isn't it? Well, any semi-automatic weapon is dangerous. Yeah, I agree. I have a semi-automatic. It was recommended for me when I went up uh, backpacking in Alaska uh, because of the bears, grizzly bears up there. And so uh, I got what was recommended to me for safety and security as I was backpacking up there. If you outlaw all semi-automatic weapons, then you're outlawing that. What about, do you think that kids under 21 should have them? You should not outlaw all uh, you know, weapons for somebody under 21 at 18, we go deer hunting in Arkansas. We go duck hunting in Arkansas. We go hog hunting in Arkansas and semi-automatic weapons can be used for those purposes. So no, I, I don't think that is a solution that you're looking for. You know, a criminal is always going to have access to the weapons that they want. And you can take uh, a semi-automatic and you can convert it to automatic. Uh, you know, there's, things that they can do to get around the law. We have to go at more of the heart of the problem 
and things that make a difference. If you today uh, wanted to outlaw uh, semi-automatics, uh, well, are you going to go out and confiscate all those that are out there now? And if you don't confiscate those, which I'm yeah. absolutely opposed to, uh, the criminals are still going to have possession of them. So uh, I think that you're looking uh, at ideas that don't work in America. Yeah. Well, we have 400 million weapons in America. So you're right. It's a very difficult problem. We've been flooded uh, with weapons. We're on the south side of Chicago as we speak today. So, you know, within a mile of here, you've got some gangs that most of them are armed with semi-automatic weapons. Now, a lot of them come in from Indiana. It's a huge problem. You and I disagree on this, but let me just say as we go out, I appreciate having a conversation with you. And we ought to be able to have these conversations and leave understanding that we have different views, but we still are patriotic Americans, still care about our country, still share a common humanity. Oh, absolutely. You've got to be able to talk about them. Uh, it is important, David, that uh, I disagree with you on a few things uh, because I wouldn't have a chance of winning any Republican I know. Let's primary. certify that. This would be the end of your campaign right exactly. here. We, we disagree probably on many things, but, uh, but I appreciate the civility you bring to these conversations. And I'll be watching with interest as I, I would love to see civility uh, have its day. Well, it needs to. And, and you, you, whenever we engage in conversations, you sharpen your arguments. And when you see a, a weak response, it uh, means you better rethink it. And uh, there's always some ways to uh, find solutions together. Yeah. Governor Asa Hutchinson, so good to be with you again. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being at the Institute of Politics. We'll be watching with interest. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Demand for energy is growing, and so is the need for America's oil and natural gas. Our economy, our security, our nation, all run on energy. Today, oil and natural gas provide 70% of our energy. They'll help fuel our economy for decades to come. Let's keep the lights on smart policies that deliver on cleaner, reliable, affordable energy, including American oil and gas. Visit LightsOnEnergy.com. Paid for by LightsOnEnergy.com a project of the American Petroleum Institute.